0: Good morning to everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians. I often forget to mention this. If you do not have a Bible, there are plenty scattered throughout the auditorium under the chairs. Just take a look around and you will easily find one. They are there for your use. Please also take your bulletin. Some of you take your bulletin automatically. You open it and you look to the right, and you see the sermon notes, and you make use of them, that's fine. Some of you don't. I'm going to encourage you, however, this morning to make use of them, um, at least for a little bit. Since we started this uh, sermon series in Galatians, I have begun uh, each Sunday with a quotation from Martin Luther. We are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, This year, October 31st, Martin Luther obviously looms large when it comes to the Protestant Reformation, and so I have begun each sermon with a a quotation from Luther that kind of lent itself to the content of the passage uh, we were considering that particular day in Galatians. And I have put, I think I have anyway, each and every Sunday put that citation on the screen. I forgot to do that this week, but... I did put it where? Next best thing in the bulletin. There it is, black and white. A citation from Martin Luther under sermon notes to get us off on the right foot this morning. Luther, in his sermon series on Galatians, proclaimed, whoever believes in Christ and by the spirit of faith has become one with him, has all things. In common with him. The Christian's sins are no longer his. They are Christ's. Meaning what? Well, I have believed in the Lord Jesus. Through that faith, I am now one with the Lord Jesus in God's reckoning. Therefore, what is mine is now Christ's. Namely what? He gets my sins reckoned to him upon Calvary's cross where he paid the penalty in full. And look at the last phrase from Luther's pen. Christ's righteousness now belongs not only to Christ. It belongs to the Christian. And so we have this great transaction. I, when I was five years of age, I don't know if I've ever said that, five years of age, I professed faith in the Lord Jesus, five years old. And I didn't understand everything at that time, but I knew I was a sinner. Ooh, did I ever know I was a sinner? I did not need convincing. I knew it and my parents knew it. And, and I knew I needed a, I knew I needed a savior. And I knew I couldn't earn my salvation. And so I believed in the Lord Jesus. I looked to the Lord Jesus and simply said, uh, you need to, you need to save me. I'm trusting in you. I didn't get it fully at the time. I don't grasp it fully now, but I do grasp more today than I did then. When I believed in the Lord Jesus through faith, me taking hold of him through faith, he taking hold of me by the Holy Spirit, we became one. One. In an indissoluble union. My sin, his. He's paid the penalty for it in full upon Calvary's cross. His righteousness now, because I'm one with him, his righteousness is now mine. Not substantively not that it's a substance taken from the Lord Jesus and transferred to me. No, declaratively, because I am now one with him. And because I am one with him, his righteousness is mine. That is what Martin Luther was preaching. That is what Martin Luther emphasized over and over and over again. It is the doctrine. Are you tired of hearing this? I pray you're not, you aren't. It is the doctrine of justification by grace alone. It is a free gift. You do not deserve it. You deserve the opposite. It is the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Faith is the means by which we receive the gift in Christ alone. Because faith makes us one with the Lord Jesus in God's reckoning. And he now sees us as his beloved son. He now sees us as righteous in his sight. Two Sundays ago, I tried in the simplest fashion possible to articulate that doctrine in seven statements. How many of you were here? More than that, I know you were. How many of you don't raise your hand for this one? Remember the seven statements. Well, here they are again, just in case you don't. Here are the seven statements. I think they are key when it comes to comprehending and appropriating the full significance of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Number one, we must obey the law to be right with God. We must, we must, we must. We must obey the law to be right with god to be accepted by him no one will enter god's presence who has not fully completely perfectly obeyed the will of god are we clear on that we must do it secondly we can't do it we can't obey the law we don't have a chance in a million years of obeying the law and we can't obey the law because we don't want to obey the law why because the flesh is at enmity with god and the flesh deep down rooted within in, in each and every one of us is absolute hostility toward God. And even when we do those things which are externally good, those actions which might be externally good, they flow from a very polluted fountain. And therefore they are unacceptable in the sight of a holy God. And so we must obey God's law to be right with him. We can't obey the law. Here's the third statement. We must obey the law, therefore, in the person of a mediator. We need someone to do it for us. We need someone to obey God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, We need someone who loves God fully and completely and from his birth to his death was completely submissive to the will of God and pleased him with every thought he had, every word he ever spoke, and every deed he ever performed. That mediator, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth truth is this. We become one one with the mediator through faith. That's the glue that now sticks us together with the mediator, whereby in God's sight, we are now in union with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. The fifth statement, therefore, is this, flowing from the fourth, God treats us now as if, the mediator's righteousness were ours. And so only those, only those who obey the law fully, perfectly, and completely can have a right standing with God. We must obey the law in order to enter into his presence. We can't obey it. We become one through faith with a mediator who has obeyed it. And it leads what? To the sixth statement. God therefore declares us to be just. He now treats us as if Christ's righteousness were ours because we are knit together with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then the seventh truth is this. Justification is the foundation for everything. That is the foundation for everything. There you have it. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so you've wandered in here this morning, perhaps the first time, perhaps you've been wandering in here for some time, weeks, months, years. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have just explained it to you as simply as I know how. You've got a big problem. You have a huge problem. God is not your number one fan. He most certainly is not. He is your greatest enemy right now, and you are a child of wrath. You're a child of wrath. But there is a mediator, a blessed mediator, God's own provision, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done everything you could never do. He has obeyed God perfectly. He has died as a substitutionary sacrifice. And God's command to you is to believe. It is to let go of your self-righteousness once and for all. It's the hardest thing to do in life. It's the hardest thing to do is to let go of, Of your self-righteousness. Everything you think you've ever done. That makes you special in God's sight. And somehow earns God's favor. There is nothing. Let it go my friend. And is to seek that righteousness. The only righteousness that is acceptable in the sight of God. The righteousness of his own son. And it is to believe in him. And by believing in him you become one with him. Whereby God now sees you as righteous in his sight. Because he imputes the righteousness of his son to you, thereby declaring you just in his sight. The verdict is changed from guilty to not guilty. And the sentence is changed from condemnation to justification. That is from death to life. Now, Paul, he waxes eloquent. He explains that, does he not? In Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Turn there if you're not there already. Because we have some unfinished business. Again, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. And follow along closely as I read again this portion of God's word. We ourselves, writes Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is dealing with an issue, isn't he? We go back to the 11th verse, same chapter. We discover exactly what this issue is. Peter, another apostle, has ventured up to the city of Antioch in Syria. And Peter knows better. He knows better. Does he ever? But out of fear of the Jews, perhaps persecution, perhaps ridicule, we don't know. But out of fear of the Jews, Peter decides to back away from the Gentile believers. He decides to distance himself from Gentile Christians and he will no longer eat with them. Big deal, you're thinking to yourself. Big deal. Actions have implications. And what are the implications of his actions? The implications are simply these. That obviously then Peter thinks, or at least through his actions, he is conveying this idea that the Old Testament law is necessary for what? To have a right standing with God that there's something about that Old Testament law uh, that is absolutely essential, that an individual must and can somehow obey that law in order to have a right standing with God. And if someone isn't living under that law, well, then I'm not going to have any association with them. And so Paul is confronting Peter. And in verses 15 through 21, the portion I just read, he is speaking directly to Peter. He is speaking, obviously, indirectly to his audience the churches of Galatia, he is obviously speaking secondly to his opponents, those who have created this dilemma in the churches of Galatia, but primarily he is speaking directly to Peter. And here again, he makes four key arguments in these verses. Are you ready for these? We're going to go through them. One, two, three, four. I gave them to you a couple of weeks ago. Here they are again. Quickly focus in, give attention, and try to understand them. Follow Paul's train of thinking. As he is confronting Peter as to the implications of his actions. And so argument number one is this. Peter, you're acting contrary to what you know. 15th verse. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so in a nutshell, Paul is saying to Peter, you're acting contrary to what you know. Let me state it for you in slightly different terms. Here it is. Listen carefully to this conversation taking place. Peter, says Paul, you and I know two things. We know two things. Number one, we know that a person isn't justified, is not justified by works of the law. And secondly, we know, we know that a person is justified through faith in Christ. Now, Peter, work with me. If Jews like you and me know this, if we need to put our faith in Christ to have a right relationship with God, then obviously the Gentiles need to do the same. Yet your actions imply that they need to observe the law to have a right relationship with God. Peter, you are acting contrary to what you know. Secondly, Peter, my friend, verses 17 and 18, you are rebuilding what you already tore down. Look with me again at those verses. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild What I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Again, my words, listen closely, carefully, understand the argument. Peter, you and I know, we know that the law reveals our sin and demonstrates our need for justification. This doesn't make Christ a promoter of sin. On the contrary, Peter, those who attempt to rebuild the law, now that Christ has come, are the ones who are actually violating God's will. They are denying the fact that righteousness is found in Christ. That's what you're doing by refusing to eat with Gentiles. Peter, you are rebuilding what you already tore down. Thirdly, Peter, You are denying the significance of the cross into the 19th verse. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here it is again by way of a dialogue. Peter, you and I know, we know that the reign of law ends through the law. What does that mean? It means this, Peter, you know, Christ takes the penalty of the law upon himself. And in so doing, he ends, terminates the era of the law. Those who believe in Christ because they're one with him, Share in this victory. You and I, Peter, we're dead to the law, meaning we're no longer under its dominion and condemnation. Do you not see the implications of your actions? Peter, you are denying the very significance of the cross. Fourthly, Peter, you are in effect saying that Christ died for no purpose. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. One final dialogue, my words, so that you get the gist of it. Here it is again. Peter, you and I know that the law is dead to us because our identity is now found in a crucified Savior. But you deny this by your actions. You give the impression that it's necessary to keep the law to obtain a right standing with God. If that's the case, the implication is that Christ's death is unnecessary for righteousness. Peter, in effect, you are saying that Christ died for no purpose. And there he concludes his entire argument, which really began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through to the end of chapter 2. And that last section in particular, where Paul deals with this issue that has arisen in the church at Antioch because of Peter's refusal to live out What he knows to be true. Did you get all that? Don't raise your hand or go like this or anything like that. It's now recorded. And if that, something's a little muddied in there or you didn't get it all, you can avail yourself of the recording. Think it through. But there's Paul's thought flow. In the midst of it, we have a tremendous statement. Really, in the midst of it, we have a tremendous summary Of the Christian life. And I'm referring to the 20th verse. And it is to this verse that I want us now to give our attention for the remaining time. The 20th verse. Here it is again. Paul declares. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. One of you has already shared that this is your favorite verse in all of Scripture, and I'm sure there are others that would fall into that category. It may not be your favorite, but certainly up near the top of the list. What I've done in the sermon notes, you see it there? I have broken the verse into five parts, five statements. I just want to explain each in a sentence or two so that we understand what Paul is saying, okay? Here it is, the first statement. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Simply put, upon the cross, Christ stood in my place. Upon the cross, Christ stood in my place. I'm speaking as a Christian. Because of my union with him through faith, his cross is made mine. Because of you. I'm one with him, his cross is made mine. It is as though I have been crucified in my own person. I wasn't there physically, tangibly, but because I am now one with Christ through faith, it is as if I had been there. It is as though I have been crucified in my person. So far, so good. Second statement. Therefore, you could almost put the word therefore in there. It is no longer I who live. I've lost my personality. It's not what? Paul means, I've lost my personal identity. That's not what he has in view. All he's saying is simply this. I am no longer identified with Adam. All I was in Adam, the old man, has been crucified with Christ. I am now identified with Christ, the new man, meaning what? I no longer live for myself, ego, self-love, that great governing principle that mars the Adamic nature. We were all born with it into this world. It has been crucified with Christ because we are one with him through faith. It is as though I have been crucified in my own person, meaning legally, All I was in Adam, that that governing principle of self-love, it has been crucified upon the cross. Therefore, I am no longer living for me. What's the third statement? It builds. But I am living for whom? Christ who lives in me. Christ lived under submission to the Holy Spirit. Now he sends the Holy Spirit into my life to help me do the same. Fourth statement. And the life I now live in the flesh, in my body right now, here I am standing before you and there you are. We're living in the flesh right now as Christians. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Although I'm united to Christ, although I'm one with him through faith, I still live here right now, 2017, Glen Rose, Texas, and I still live in a fallen world. Very fallen world. Meaning what? That the spiritual life that I now live is one of unbelievable tension between who I am on the one hand in Christ and this crazy world in which I find myself and I'm living And therefore, I am living now in the flesh. I must live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith, meaning each and every day I seek to submit myself to Christ who dwells in me by the Holy Spirit. And in the fifth part of the verse, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul's point here? Simply this, the object of my faith. The object of this faith by which I now live as I live in this period of tension, as I live in the flesh, knowing who I am, my true identity in the Lord Jesus, and yet finding myself still here in the fallen world. I'm living by faith, seeking to submit myself to Christ who dwells in me by the Holy Spirit. The the impetus to do this is what? It's a great statement. He loved me. And he gave himself. For me, the object of my faith is Christ's love and passion is suffering. As one author of old put it, Christ's self-sacrificial love serves as fuel for my faith-filled obedience. That's Galatians 2.20. It's beautiful, isn't it? It gives us, Paul gives us, a summary, beautiful summary of the Christian life. Here's my exhortation to each of us. And I'm speaking principally to believers. I'm speaking to Christians. Here's my exhortation to each of us. It's the words of Christ himself. Let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. Paul in this verse gives us the key to the Christian life, it's not a silver bullet. That's not what I mean by this, but he gives us a key to the Christian life—the key that opens the door to what it means to live in this present age. Listen carefully, give close attention. I'm going to summarize it as follows. Are you ready? The key, according to Galatians two twenty, the key to the Christian life is. One, believing that Christ was crucified for me. Okay, so far so good. Number one, it is believing that Christ was crucified for me. Two, believing that I have been crucified with Christ. Three, seeing myself daily hanging. On the cross. And four, living accordingly. That is the key to the Christian life. I'll repeat it. The key to the Christian life is one, believing that Christ was crucified for me, to atone for my sins. Praise God. Believing, as Paul articulates so clearly in this verse, that I have been crucified with Christ because of my union with him, it is as though I have been crucified in my very person. It is, thirdly, therefore, seeing myself dead, gasping, breathing my last upon the cross. And it is, fourthly, what? Living like it. It is living accordingly. Now, did you get all that? That was a lot of exposition in there, wasn't there? Time for application. What I want to do is simply explain what this therefore should look like. Let these words sink into your ears. If this is the key to the Christian life, uh, what should those truths, what should this reality at the intersect of theory, what I now understand cognitively, And my Monday through Saturday, in and out, the nitty-gritty of life. What should this actually look like? Uh, How does this impact me? It's important we hear this. It's extremely important we wrestle with this. There is, as Paul warns, this is his second epistle to Timothy, isn't it, chapter 2? There is such a thing as a form of godliness. There are those who hold to a form of godliness. While denying its power, we have entered into the realm of its power. Of what godliness actually looks like. Of what union with Christ actually looks like. We are now entering into the realm of sanctification. This was a weakness. Off we go on a little bit of a tangent. Two minutes. This was a weakness in Luther's thought. We began with Luther. Luther was very solid, very solid on the doctrine of justification. And Luther did understand and articulate on occasion that doctrine in the context of union with Christ. More often than not, he did not. It is a weakness in his theology which gives rise to problems within Lutheranism, which comes after him, which is the exact relationship, the precise relationship between justification and sanctification. We do not have this weakness in Calvin's thought. We do not have this weakness in the Reformed tradition that comes out of Calvin. Why? Because Calvin, from beginning to end, always, no matter what way he comes at it, the gospel, the starting point is always union with Christ. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. We receive the Lord Jesus through faith. Because we are one with the Lord Jesus, we therefore receive all of his blessings and benefits. The two chief blessings are what? And we dare not ever separate them. The two chief blessings are, yes, in logical priority, justification. Followed by sanctification. Because you see, union with Christ not only has legal ramifications... By virtue of that union, not only is my legal status now changed and altered forevermore in the sight of God, whereby He has declared me just in His sight, but it also has implications for what? The power of sin within me. Because you see, I am now one with Christ. I have been crucified with Him. It is as though I have been crucified with Him. And recognizing that reality, I am now called and I am now commanded to act like it live like it. You're dead. You're a dead man walking. Now act like it each and every day. That is sanctification. And here are eight ways in which this must be evident in our lives. You care group leaders, football season, it's almost there, right? We're on the one yard line. I'm handing you the football. Don't fumble it. Get the touchdown Wednesday night when it comes to application and these eight points, what it means to drive these home. Number one, if Galatians 2.20 is true, and it obviously is, it means I behave as a dead man in respect to my sin. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm no longer living for myself. It is now Christ who lives in me. It is all for him. I must behave as a dead man in respect to my sin. What does this mean for your struggle with envy? Your struggle with anger, your struggle with bitterness. Anybody want to answer that question? I pray you will answer that question. If this verse is true, what does it mean, my friend? Those are the big three. They're at the root of so many of our problems. They are. You can't deny it. It's just, it's fact. Fact. Envy, anger, bitterness. What does Galatians 2.20 mean for that? What does it mean for your lust? What does it mean for our impatience, our greed? What does it mean for unguarded words and unfiltered thoughts? Do you each and every day see yourself hanging upon the cross, gasping your last? What you were in Adam is dead, legally dead in Christ Jesus. Oh, the implications and the call now to put to death each and every day that sin which still wages war against our soul. Secondly, I behave, Galatians two in the light of Galatians 2.20, I behave as a dead man in respect to my pride. Closely related to number one, I set it apart simply because it, receives, it, it must receive some special attention. I behave as a dead man in respect to my pride. Oh, my desire, it must die. This desire must die. It must die each and every day to be better, my desire, to be better than others, a desire that causes me to set up markers, identifiable markers, whereby I can differentiate myself from others, my money, my status, my looks, my education. We've had a horrendous example of this. This, past, My race. We're seeing that now in North Carolina, aren't we? My race. I'm in love with my whiteness. With all these things that we will elevate, elevate, as setting us apart, differentiating us from others in order to get that which we crave, the feeding of pride, Oh, our pride must die each and every day. Thirdly, in light of Galatians 2.20, I behave as a dead man in respect to my will. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Therefore, daily, I am exchanging my will for his will. Daily, my prayer is not my will, but thine be done. How does this apply to the kids among us when it comes to their relationship with their parents? How does this apply to the parents among us? How does this apply to the relationship between spouses? How does this apply? How is this worked out in the context of the home, the office, the church? How is this worked out when it comes to how I use my money? How I use my time, how I use my gifts, how I use my talents, how I use my abilities. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer the ego is dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Fourthly, I behave as a dead man in respect to the world. The world is characterized by a system. It is a system. Of perspectives, convictions, actions which make man the central focus. Well, we have been crucified with Christ. We are now called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We are called now to think radically different. Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? What do I want? What do I value? Oh, our answers to these questions are now dictated by the word of God and not the world in which we live. Fifthly, in the light of Galatians 2.20, I behave as a dead man in respect to offenses. You offended me. How dare you? You mistreated me. You misspoke Concerning me, how do I react when people are selfish, when people are unfair, when people are abrupt, when people are insensitive? How do I deal with these things in the home, in the church, or the office? Yes, to a certain degree, there is a time to defend ourselves. Yes, to a certain degree, under certain conditions and circumstances, it may be necessary to involve others. It may be necessary to separate ourselves from a a, a context of abuse or something of that nature. But here's where I'm going with this. When we we confront people or face people who disagree with us, or people who uh, dismiss us, or people as far as we're concerned are not treating us as we deserve, do we take offense That's the ego. That's the old man. Do we seek revenge? I'll give as good as I got. Do I get snarky and sarcastic? Do I get testy and tenacious? Do I get crusty and combative? Well, you're going to have fun on Wednesday night in your care groups. We should record these things. How do we respond? Do we respond as one who has been crucified? And it's no longer me who's living, but it is Christ who lives in me. Sixthly, I behave as a dead man in respect to praise or my craving of acceptance. Oh, this desire for approval. This desire for acceptance is a powerful idol. We will do almost anything to be esteemed by others. We don't want to look foolish. We want to be esteemed. And this governs and dictates so much of how we act, what we say, how we think. But if self has died, breathed its last by virtue of our union with Christ, and if it is now Christ who lives and reigns in us, what was his chief ambition? What made him tick? What was his desire each and every day? wasn't it always the glory of his Father? Wasn't it always in word and thought and deed to make sure his Father in heaven was glorified? Oh, the need to put to death our desire for acceptance and praise and approval. Number seven, in the light of Galatians 2.20, I behave as a dead man in respect to comforts. The world tells us this very day, that our purpose is to play, collect stuff, and pursue a life of ease and comfort. Many of us actually think prosperity is an inalienable right. No, it isn't. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. And number eight, the last, I could add to this less list. You're thankful I'm not. We could add many more, but number eight, this will suffice. In the light of Galatians 2.20, I behave as a dead man in respect to afflictions, in respect to troubles and trials. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, he is filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. In his suffering, this is Paul, his vantage point, his perspective. And in his suffering, he is filling up, completing that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. He is not referring to Christ's atoning sacrifice, his passion upon Calvary's cross. He is referring to the life of suffering, that suffering that marked and characterized his entire sojourn on earth. That now, because of his identification with Christ, being one with him, one body, he now recognized that his suffering in this life was actually an extension and continuation of whose suffering. It actually wasn't his suffering, but the suffering of Jesus Christ. Suffering isn't, oh, this is so tough. Suffering isn't just the way Christ triumphed. It is the only way we will ever triumph. And when we respond to suffering well, we show the world our true treasure. We show the world that we have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. Let me repeat my thesis. Here's the central thesis. You can take it away, meditate on this, reflect on this. And on Wednesday night, I do pray this comes up time and time again. And you're able to make again the application, build the bridge between the theory of knowing and what this actually looks like in daily experience. Here it is again. The key to Christian life is one, believing, yes, that Christ was crucified for me. Two, believing that I have been crucified with Christ. Three, seeing myself hanging on the cross, dead, the old Adam, the ego. And four, living accordingly. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help this day. We pray for your help, for your guidance, for the illuminating work of your Spirit to help us to really grasp all that we have considered. and We pray not only for uh, this work of illumination, we pray for a work of inclination, whereby our hearts are turned to these truths, these realities, your purposes for us, and our identity, who we really are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your grace, grace upon grace, You would help us to live accordingly each and every day. Give us wisdom for these things. Grant us fortitude, we pray, and we seek it from you in your son's matchless name. Amen.